Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you um, the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we're on page 209, chapter 24. And let's begin. I hope that you enjoy. Thank you for joining me. The chapter heading is called New Trails and Old. And the next heading um, is called Ridgeway. Early in 1884, on January the 17th, in response to an invitation from some citizens, I visited Ridgeway, a small station on the Burlington Railroad in the northern part of Missouri. The purpose of the visit was to deliver a lecture on temperance. People, it seems, were often willing to listen to me as a temperance speaker who would not come to hear me as a preacher of the word. I'm going to stop there a moment. And I kept thinking, what does this mean, temperance? But every time he says the word temperance, it seems to be associated with um, alcohol. So, so um, yeah, he's talking about, talking about that. Anyway, let me carry on. Probably the initial move for these meetings was made by Mrs. Fowler, Mrs. Halley and Mrs. Lily Chrisman, leaders in the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or their allies. In there had been a carpenter at Lamoni, assisting in building my home, whose name was Daniels, if I remember rightly. After his removal to Ridgeway, he seemed anxious that his acquaintances there should hear me speak and impress them with the notion that I was um, considerable of an orator. He suggested my name to the committee and offered to arrange with me to come and lecture for them. Although my reception was a bit chilly, the fact that I had been granted a hearing in the Methodist Church attracted general attention, and there was a good audience. At the close, I was introduced to a Mr. Burgeon, president of the County Fair Association. Through this gentleman and his interest... I was, some months later, invited to deliver the 4th of July oration there. I accepted and in due time went again to Ridgeway. The experiences of that patriotic occasion proved to be so singular they remain in memory and may with propriety be included here. In the first place, upon reaching the village on the morning of the 4th, I was met by a lone hack driver who... Acting upon instructions from the committee, disposed of me by taking me to a hotel where I was to have entertainment for the day. The meeting was to be held in a lumberyard where a bowery, speaker's platform and seats had been prepared. To this place I was left to make my way myself. I met none of the committee on arrangements except Mr Burgeon, the chairman. The only associates I had on the platform were a dark-aged preacher... Um, of the so-called Christian denomination known as soul sleepers who delivered the prayer and an aged pioneer settler who was placed there because he was hard of hearing. <laughs> From the invocation, no one would have recognised the assembly as a political one composed of Republican freemen and met for the purpose of celebrating their emancipation from tyrannous and oppressive rule of a kingly power, for no reference to such matters was made. There was not even the customary request that the speaker of the hour might give liberty of thought and expression. 
The situation seemed strangely formal, and I soon discovered that in the festivities of the day, this glorious fourth, the speaker in the Bowery, was only an incident, a machine to serve as a sort of human peg-top to spin about for a while for the edification or entertainment of the few who might be interested or curious, but one to be wholly disregarded by the masses which moved and jostled about, having evidently gathered more for the purpose of frivolity and neighbourly gossip than through patriotic fervour. However, I did the best I could, had a fair degree of oratorical liberty, and was warmly congratulated by Mr. Burgeon and the elderly pioneer. I was given no chance to shake hands with the minister who had offered prayer, for he skilfully avoided meeting me face to face. It does me some good to relate here that I was later given a good chance to pay him back for his obvious neglect, but I did it in quite a different brand of coin. It was an, on an occasion when he, the dark-faced one, his name was Richardson, came to Lamoni to preach a funeral sermon in our little chapel. A young man named Stearns had died in some kind of riotous brawl under circumstances considered rather disparaging. His parents lived near Lamoni and one of them belonged to the Soul Sleepers Church. Mr Richardson, as a representative speaker of that denomination, was invited to deliver the funeral sermon, and I was requested to act in association with him. In offering prayer, I did not forget or neglect to ask divine assistance for him, for I knew the circumstances made his task a very difficult one, an ordeal truly trying. According to the philosophy he advocated, as I understood it to be, he had nothing respecting the son whom they had lost, which he could offer the parents in comfort or consolation. Our assistance was freely given, and I treated the man with cordiality as a friend engaged in a good cause. I also joined with our little choir, led by Brother Wilson Hudson, and accompanied at the organ by Sister Mary White, as they rendered music for the hour. One song, then quite popular, was called One by One, and to the credit of its writers, it may be said this song furnished the only touch of emotion the whole service presented. I had attended many funerals in my time, but had never witnessed one so dark, cheerless and foreboding as that one. At the close of the sermon, the mother threw herself upon the coffin in a wild paroxysm of despair, and in spite of the care of her aged partner and the aid of friends, it seemed impossible to control her grief. At last it became necessary for our presiding elder, Asa Cochran, to exercise a degree of kindly force to remove her and permit the conclusion of the service and the rite of internment. The sequel of this story is that these two sorrowing parents unwillingly unwilling to entertain for their son the gloomy thoughts presented by that minister had their attention directed to the more cheering and hopeful promises offered in the religion of the friends who sang the hymns they made themselves acquainted with our faith and doctrine united with the church and enjoyed their associations therein the remainder of the days they are buried in the cemetery at Lamoni. next heading a rising cloud of dissension writing as i am on this the 10th day of october 1913 and recalling the events of 1884 there comes 
to mind incidents of the conference. It was held that year at Stewartsville, Missouri, at the request of quite a respectable body of saints who had gathered in that prairie country some 25 miles east of St. Joseph and continuous to the Rock Island Railroad. We met in a hall over a livery stable, it being the largest room in the city and the only one available for that purpose. Aside from its somewhat unpleasant environment, the room was quite suitable. As far as business was concerned, the sessions passed off pleasantly, with one exception that exception um, characterises it in my memory as notable. As early as 1866 and 1867, there had arisen in the Quorum of Twelve a sort of mental and moral conflict, which had extended over into the Quorms of High Priests and Seventies, and had created quite a divergence of opinions. A question of supremacy in rule was involved, such as have arisen in the ranks of religionists, um, time out of mind. Reduced to plain English, the question was, who shall make or formulate the doctrines and legendary teachings of the church? There were two parts to the controversy, though when it first bobbed up in 1866 and 1867, there had not been any particular cleavage between individuals that caused outward disturbances. Elder Jason W. Briggs, associated with me in presiding over this conference at Stewartsville, was the leader upon one side and I upon the other, each of us having adherents, of course. The controversial discussions were raised at times upon particular points, which were finally decided by the quorum and others in a manner that might be termed a compromise. As president of the church, I had given pledge at Amboy in 1860 that I would not advocate any doctrine that should not meet the approval of the body and of the code of good morals, adhering to the proposition that such code was to be found in the Bible, the New Testament especially, uh, the Book of Mormon and the revelations which had been given to the church. I believed it was not our province to disregard the plain teachings of the revelations themselves in order to suit the possible opinions of those who in our day might object to some of them or to the methods of procedure on the grounds that they were now inapplicable or obsolete. Some of the brethren very strongly opposed any centralisation of power in the Presidency and the Twelve. Given this feeling a plain expression, it might be termed a chronic fear of one-man power. One side contended that it was essential to the peace and safety of the Church that the two leading quorums should be hedged about by some supervision, as would prevent them from using the people as either temporal or spiritual merchandise. Some of the twelve partook of this particular sentiment, assuming that there was more safety in a council of many than in one of three, or possibly but one. The quorums were incomplete at that time, and conditions in the church gave rise to the thought that under the administration of affairs they might not be full for some time to come. How long the Lord only knew. Manifestations of strong feeling cropped out at that conference at Stewartsville, which were rather surprising, and there followed the occurrence which I remember as notable. For some reason... 
which had apparently presented itself in one or two important missions, some members of the Twelve had been under the necessity of making certain decisions in regard to church procedure, which seemed to be infractions upon the liberties of some ministers and local officers. The matter had been agitated to a degree, and it was expected that at this conference strong objection against these actions and decisions would be made. The Quorum of Twelve had fortified itself against his anticipated opposition by passing a resolution within itself declaring that the decision of one of its members made in the active discharge of his ministerial duties could not be called in question or brought up for examination and approval or disapproval by any other group than the quorum itself and that such decision would be final at the conference cases taken from the reports of the ministry in which such decisions had been made were cited in one of these the rights of the bishopric had been involved and according to some invaded thus there was thrust upon the conference the necessity for deciding whether or not such decision as the resolution the twelve had passed upholding the actions of the individual members should be construed as proper church procedure and thus bind the bishop and his council and perhaps other quorums in the discharge of their duties strong arguments were advanced from both sides and feeling feeling ran high among the eldership and the members and um, the whole assembly being apparently pervaded and haunted by a nervous fear of one-man rule the bishopric had so strongly opposed the extreme position taken by the twelve that the bishop had threatened to withhold ministerial support from those in the field until it should be modified Finally, when the debate had waxed warm, Brother Jason Briggs was to deliver a speech upon his side of the question, which his supporters confidently expected would so ably present their arguments that those who differed in opinion would be, to use a popular expression, completely snowed under. Brother Briggs got into action, when all at once, to our astonishment, a complete change of attitude seemed to come over him. He seemed to be influenced by some power which caused him to abandon his former position and frankly concede to our side much of that which had been in dispute. His surprising exhibition of the operation of the spirit of the master working among us to produce harm in our, in our ranks seemed most remarkable. Under its influence, Brother, Brother Briggs' discourse dispelled the clouds which had hovered over the conference and we all breathed more freely at least one phase of the question as to who should formulate the policies of the church and its members and of procedure in absolute authority had been raised discussed and settled without a serious outbreak the conference had decided that under the constitution of the church and the acknowledged fallibility of man not one or three or twelve or any minor number should exercise the power of absolute interpretation of law in such a way as to preclude the right of the body to inquire to make decision and to express its will through the action of an unquestioned majority influenced by the spirit of the great lawgiver jesus christ as it operates in directing and dominating the fortunes of his church. Brother Jason Briggs was never the same after that conference of 1884. In his address, which had formed the pivotal point upon which the affairs of the church turned at that moment, I saw there had been a direct intervention of the spirit of the master at work with him as an individual, even to the overcoming of himself. 
Whatever I had intended to do in the distressing emergency which seemed imminent was not needed, for the crisis passed, and as the one man who ought not to be placed in power, I had not become involved. A similar hesitancy to trust the centralisation of power in the church has cropped out at intervals since that conference, but while that hesitancy has sometimes apparently amounted almost to positive distrust, it has not resulted in any serious break of separation of our forces. Another incident that occurred at this conference may also be noted. On a night between sessions I had a dream or vision in which I saw three men at a table, apparently an ordinary table in a business office. They seemed to be attentively considering something lying on it before them. Unnoticed, I drew near to learn what held their interest and saw a manuscript which, ev which evidently they had been reading. It was lying with its outer sheets uppermost, on which were clearly written the words manuscript story. They were followed by what appeared to be an avidavy to which three names were signed. I comprehended that they were the names of the witness used by Dr. D.P. Halbert in the book he wrote published by E.D. Howe of Painesville, Ohio, in which the Spaudlin theory of the origin of the Book of Mormon was set forth. When I awoke in the morning, I found myself in considerable relation of spirit, the dream or vision still vividly with me in memory. Overtaking Brother E. L. Kelly on our way to the conference session, I linked my arm with his. As we walked along, I told him that I had witnessed in the night and stated that I firmly believed that a writing would come to light purporting to be that manuscript story and that along with it would be a paper signed by individuals identifying it as the one written by Solomon Spaulding from which, according to Herbert's claims, the Book of Mormon had been evolved. Whatever may have been the source of this dream or vision that had come to me, the facts are that it was followed in 1885 by the discovery of the very manuscript described. It was found in possession of Mr. L. L. Rice of Honolulu, Territory of Hawaii, where it had long been lodged among some papers he had obtained from E. D. Howe when he purchased the printing plant used in publishing the paper at Painesville. In the form of a certificate, it did indeed bear the signatures I had seen in my dream. The story of its discovery is in the far-off Pacific island, has often been published and repeated among us, and the church has been permitted to print a copy of the manuscript, which it keeps on sale at its office of publication.